In the name of God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. In another parish that I served, I had a parishioner who was often very troubled by the Nicene Creed. And it wasn't that she was troubled by some of the normal things that people are often troubled by. She didn't doubt the bodily resurrection or the virgin birth, and she didn't need the assurance that when we say the creed together, it's important that it begins with we believe in one God, which is a departure from the Latin credo, which is I believe. And that because we say we, this is like a form of prayer of Christians near and far holding together the Orthodox faith, believing in it together so that if you struggle on a particular day or a particular season, or maybe for a very long time with a particular part of the creed, well, there's probably someone not too far from you saying the same words who can hold that belief for you for now. And we as a body do that together for each other. But none of this was the struggle of this particular parishioner. Her struggle instead was Pontius Pilate. Why, why, why would we for thousands of years actually say his name in the middle of the creed? And I think if I tried to put a fine point on it, the question was really about why we would punish him like that or call him out like that or even give him this position of prominence that we would continue to say his name over and over and over again for thousands of years. Christians, some of them every day of their lives have said this creed, naming specifically Pontius Pilate. And I tried to explain that at least in part, this is a historical tool that the the Nicene Conference wanted to pinpoint exactly where Jesus's life took place and crossed with the real timeline, showing us when this happened and that it was real, that he really did suffer under Pontius Pilate, who was a living, breathing human that we can date, that we can trace. But that wasn't a good enough answer. In the years since I had this conversation or a series of debates probably is more accurate, I've come to believe that she was probably right and that there must be some kind of greater meaning than just a historical reference point. And while I'm not in the business of defending Pilate, he was after all a Roman, a man who lived by a code of violence and vengeance, someone who definitely isn't a role model for our kids, not someone warm and fuzzy, not someone for us to look up to. Please don't hear me in this sermon in any way trying to rehab Pilate. I'm not. He is not someone that we would have liked to know. But I do believe at this point that the creed might be calling us to see something about Pilate, to pay attention to something about who he was and what he can teach us about ourselves and the story of Jesus. The truth is that we don't know all that much historically about Pilate. We know for sure that he existed, that he was a real person in a real position of power. And at the time we're talking about, he was the Roman prefect of Judea under the emperor Tiberius. We think he was an equestrian knight, appointed prefect by a favor to someone that was close to Tiberius. And we know this post as prefect of Judea was not glamorous. This was sort of a backwater place. It was a job that no real Roman wanted. No one wanted to be in charge of Judea. At best, it was a stepping stone. At worst, it sort of ruined your career if you showed that you couldn't handle it. Because Israel did not like being oppressed. And they never quite managed to live well under their Roman overlords. There were other peoples in other parts of the world who did, but for Israel, it never really worked. There was always oppression and violence and uprising and a, and a cycle 
of this that repeated itself. Tradition tells us that Pilate made this history worse by insulting the faith of the Jewish people by stepping on their traditions. He did not get along with the priests, which is sort of visible in the gospel and the passion reading that you've just heard. But aside from the accounts in the gospel, there isn't a lot more that we know about Pilate historically. He wasn't a big fish. He wasn't really all that important in the Roman world, and he doesn't appear to have had a successful career after his stint in Judea. We only have traditions about the way that he died, no actual record. And so this story that we have of him in the gospel is really what he's known for. And it's pretty much all we have about who Pontius Pilate actually was. So if there's something for us to see about Pilate, some reason that we need to remember him so clearly in the creed, other than a historical pinpoint, the only place we can really go to delve into that is to dig into the story of the gospel itself, which, you know, is sort of my favorite thing to do. Often in church, I think there is this idea, this sense that Pilate was evil somehow, that he was just this really bad guy who, you know, played his part in history. But the truth is, if you listen to the text, the text doesn't really bear that out. And again, I'm not defending the guy, but it's clear that he's not just evil. He's not just bad. After all, it's the temple guard who have Jesus arrested with the help of Judas, his own disciple, and on behalf of the priests. And the guard takes him to withstand a religious trial. It's the high priest Caiaphas who finally questions and condemns Jesus even though they've heard Jesus speak openly, as he points out in the gospel. Now they come for him at night, so the crowds can't rescue him or turn on them. And in this rushed secret trial that takes place well outside the law, they find him guilty, and Caiaphas sends him to Pilate. They want to have him killed, and they can't. Pilate is the only answer to that problem. And you'll notice in the text that Pilate actually goes out to meet them. He doesn't insist that they come into the hall, understanding that if they do, they'll be ritually unclean and won't be able to sit and eat the Passover. So the first time we see Pilate, he's actually doing a decent thing. He's coming out to meet them, probably annoyed, granted, because it's early in the morning. But he's still honoring their tradition, wanting them to take Jesus and judge him according to their own law, probably wishing that this wasn't his problem, but no matter what he does, it seems to come back for him again and again and again. And in the midst of the problem of Jesus coming back to him, Pilate shows us some things, some characteristics, some lack of judgment, some lack of commitment that honestly we can all relate to. First, Pilate wants to know the truth. He's clearly intrigued or maybe a little freaked out by what he hears Jesus saying, by who he hears Jesus says he is. And so he asks Jesus in the midst of this conversation, what is truth? He's curious, maybe cynical, but probably curious. But the problem is he's not curious enough to finish that line of questioning, to follow that line of thought. He's not curious enough to go look for the truth even when it's standing right in front of him. He sort of wants to know, maybe he thinks he wants to know, but when confronted with the actual truth, the, little, the literal infleshed truth standing right in front of him, he can't be bothered to do the work to look deeply enough at Jesus, to really seek Jesus out, even though he's right there. He sort of throws this question out and then backs off very quickly and goes on to the next thing. 
So then we see Pilate seem to want to spare Jesus. He keeps trying to pass him off to Herod, to Caiaphas. He wants to avoid having to kill this man. Okay, fine, I'll have him flogged, but then I'm still gonna try to free him. But even if he wants to spare Jesus, he isn't invested enough in that idea that he's willing to rock the boat. And in the end, rather than saving the innocent man, rather than doing the right thing, which in this case is well within his power, but might have created some more political problems for him, admittedly, instead of doing the right thing, he does the easy thing, and he goes along with the plotting and the wishes of others. He seems to want to spare Jesus, but at the end of the day, he doesn't really care enough. Not really. Not enough to do something about it. Not enough to make other people unhappy. Not enough to deal with the political upheaval of what that decision would mean. And then there's one more thing. He washes his hands. He wants to be clean himself, to not be associated with this man's blood, but truthfully, he can't. We remember him as guilty because you can't separate yourself from the things that you've done or from the things that you were unwilling to do, which may be more accurate in the case of Pilate. He was unwilling to save Jesus and he can't separate himself from that just by pretending that he isn't to blame. At the end of the day, Pilate isn't all that different than we are. And what he does in this text is the same thing that we all do at various points in our lives, in various seasons, and for many reasons. We want to know the truth, but we don't go seeking after it. Even when it's right in front of us, we fail to see it. We fail to hear it, to take it in, and to let it change us. We say one thing and we do another. We profess a faith that we often fail to nurture, to explore, to try to understand. We claim to know the truth. We claim to want to know the truth because we see it in Jesus, because we glimpse it, because we have a foretaste of it. But then we just sort of settle there and we sort of leave it at that instead of really seeking, instead of really following. We want to be followers of Jesus and to honor his life, but honestly, a lot of the time, we want more, not to rock the boat. We want to be followers, but maybe not badly enough to make the difficult choices. Instead, we are tame disciples who whisper our prayers so that we don't make anyone uncomfortable. How many of us know the right thing to do in any given situation, and yet we still don't do it? We let it slip by, to slip through our fingers, to get away from us because it's hard, because it might make waves, because it might make some of our relationships harder. How many of us know that we should speak up or do something differently for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of a loved one, or even for the sake of our faith? And we just let the moment go. We choose not to have the hard conversation. We decide it's better just to go with the flow. And in the meantime, there's something else we compromise, someone else who gets hurt. And we want to believe, generally, that if we live a good life and we mind our own business, that we are innocent of this man's blood, that we can clean ourselves. But we are not innocent. We are part of a system that keeps us from being innocent. We are human. We sin. We make mistakes. And we have choices to make that could make things better, and yet we often ignore them and let them slip away. We fall short of the abundant, loving life God wants for us because we're too busy to seek the truth. We fall short of following Jesus and loving our neighbor because it's just too hard and we don't want to rock the boat. And we take for granted 
what Jesus does on the cross today. So really, if you look at this text and you look at Pilate, if you look him in the eye, there are three lessons he has to teach us. First is about seeking the truth, seeking God seriously and with all our hearts, knowing that that is a priority and that often the truth stands right in front of us and we need only look for it, listen for it, and take it in. Second, about being faithful enough to be willing to rock the boat. I promise my friends, if you're doing it right, if you're really loving your neighbor and seeking the common good, you will make folks unhappy from time to time. Jesus certainly did. And third is really about understanding our place in this story, that we are in this story. And like Pilate, we cannot just wash our hands and look away. We cannot just check Good Friday off of our list and say, okay, now I'm ready for Easter. It is crucial on this Good Friday that we take this hard look at Pilate, which really is a hard look at ourselves, our priorities, and the ways that we fall short of the hope that is within us. Not because God wants us to feel badly or to wallow in our sin, that is never the goal, but because in order for us to take seriously what Jesus does on the cross today, we have to understand why he does it and what it means for us and how it changes the world. And my friends, this is the most important thing in the world, in all of creation. What Jesus does for us on the cross this day, at this hour, is the only thing that matters. He is the truth. And as our Lord hangs on the cross today, I encourage you to sit in this Good Friday moment, to not rush to Easter, but to sit in the darkness and the difficulty of this day and let Pilate be your rather ironic guide on the road to deeper faith. How will you prepare yourself today for the new season and new life of Easter? What will be different for you when we cross that threshold and the light breaks through again on Easter morning? What part of your life can be reimagined and renewed in the light of God? What decisions should you be making with a determined mind that will, in fact, rock the boat and make the world around you better for the other people that God loves? What can you do to seek and find the truth of God? And how can you hold yourself accountable for the part that you play in this story? Not just as Pilate, who was there on the day of Jesus, but as yourself the part that you play now, this day. My friends, turn your eyes to the cross. Amen.